Uh, in fact, there was visits to Germany by British educators during the, the 1950s, and they came back saying, who exactly won the war? Hello, welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. Today I'm speaking with Peter Hitchens. Peter has been one of the UK's most important journalists for many decades now. He worked as a foreign correspondent in Moscow and Washington. He won the prestigious Orwell Prize in 2010 and is the author of many books, including The Abolition of Britain, which I have here, The Rage Against God, The War We Never Fought, and The Phony Victory. I wanted to speak to Peter, however, about a subject that he is passionate about, education, specifically academic selection and grammar schools. For non-UK listeners, grammar schools are free selective schools in the UK. At their height in the 60s, there were over 1,200 of these schools, but they were eventually closed down, they were abolished. In fact, it was Margaret Thatcher who closed the most grammar schools when she was education secretary. Now, Peter believes that these schools were an imperfect gold standard, but a gold standard nonetheless. And their closure resulted in the lowering of educational standards across the board, grade inflation and fewer bright working-class kids going to places like Oxford and Cambridge. Now, remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms, and if you are new to this channel, then make sure to subscribe to the main channel, which is where I post a whole variety of educational content in philosophy and psychology and other subjects, as well as the most interesting clips from this podcast series, the full discussions of which are uploaded onto this channel. All those links are in the description down below, and with that, I give you Peter Hitchens. Okay, so the first question we have for you is what it means to be truly educated. You're obviously uh, a fan of Matthew Arnold's view of culture, that culture is about the best that's been thought and said and passing that on to the next generation. Do you think that's what it means to be truly educated? Do you think that's part of it? Are you a fan of, for example, David Goodhart's view that every school should teach something to do with the heart, obviously metaphorically, the hand, craft skills, and also the cognitive skills that you would have in a grammar school or a more selective school? I'm not a fan of anything David Goodhart says, but I, I don't think, I'm not myself an educator. I don't, I wouldn't try and set out a curriculum for people to follow or to define exactly what it means to be educated. Uh, the, the Matthew Arnold statement is really cliche, isn't it? It just it allows people to say that, that that's, that that's, that's broadly what they want. But I know myself that I am very poorly educated by my own standards. I'm constantly aware of it. Uh, I wish that I knew more, particularly of the classics. I wish I could speak and write in foreign languages. And there are many, many, many other things that I'm discontented about. I think the, the, the fundamental position of, of being educated is, is to be in a state of informed discontent, so that you know, you have a pretty good idea at least of what you don't know and how much it matters. But I certainly wouldn't prescribe to anybody what what they should learn, which would make them an educated person. See, this is this is quite concerning because you are someone who's you you obviously have a, a national newspaper column. You've written what I think of are, are, as incredibly important books. In Roger Scruton's book uh, *England: An Elegy*, he cites your book as incredibly important. So if you're saying you're not educated. Do, do you think that? I know I'm not educated. I, mean, I, I, I sabotaged my own education in, in detail around about the age of 15, and it's never recovered from it. And that's by the standards of when I was going to school. It's the, the, the very middle of the 1960s, just before the, the dissolution of the grammar schools, revolutionized secondary education in this country. So I was getting something approaching a proper education, but I never actually got it. So, so. Are those the standards that you look to, the, the 1960s, as you know, these Oxbridge dons who kind of knew all of history? That's what it meant to be. They're the only ones that I know. Uh, I, I know what we were expected to know reasonably as, um, as, as educated citizens from an advanced country. And I, I, I could see perfectly well what it was I was going to be learning and what I was going to be tested in. But I didn't get there, so I, I know that I missed it. The, the fascinating thing about living in modern Britain is that, is that I can, people actually accuse me of being, being an intellectual. Uh, when, when I, I know for, for certain that my, uh, my knowledge is full of gigantic gaps. I just don't know huge numbers of things. I'm not familiar with, uh, with, with important authors. I'm not familiar with important aspects of philosophy. Uh, I'm almost totally ignorant of the natural sciences. 
So no, I don't. I just it, it amazes me that, I, that it, it's a measure for me of the decline of the country that I'm, I can pass as an educated person. See, the thing is, I, I struggle with this because do you think it's then possible to be truly educated if Roger Scruton is the only person who's truly educated? Well, I could never understand most of what Roger Scruton was saying, so it obviously is possible to be truly educated, but it, it, it's, it was plainly beyond me. So do you think there are only ever going to be a few people who are? Well, there's certainly only going to be a few people who are educated and knowledgeable to the standard that Roger Scruton reached. Uh, but I, I, also, I, I actually, so I, I didn't much like um, what I did try of his. I, it's, it, I have problems with a lot of people who are much idolised by others. I can't stand most of G.K. Chesterton, for instance. Uh, and I, I've never really got on with Roger Scruton's writing. And when I listened to him speak, I found myself drifting off uh, into the, the realms of um, what you might politely call speculation. He's not for me. I'm not. I keep saying I am just a jobbing scribbler. But should it be people like? Yes. Sorry. Oh, sure, sorry. And should it be people like Roger Scruton then, or as educated as him as you deem him to be, um, who decide what the best is to impart? It's, it's, I don't know. That's been decided by the history of the world, and people have come to these conclusions that all the great schools and universities, which have existed down the centuries have refined what they have believed until until the recent revolution, what they have believed was necessary to know. Now, I'd say there may be another kind of society in which a different set of things might need to be known. But what the revolution has done is it's, it's fundamentally said that we don't need to know these things anymore. It's been a revolution against knowledge, against the canon of, of, of knowledge, against a set, a set idea of what's to be known. It's liberated people from necessarily needing to know anything and in many cases, it's, it's elevated the ignorant and the, uh, the, and the poorly read to positions of great eminence. So it's not, it's the, the, whatever the new revolution is, it's not proposing a replacement of the old. Like somebody might, in which case we could argue about whether it was better or worse. But it's plainly, to me, worse uh, to have a revolution which, which elevates ignorance and uh, uh, diminishes the importance of it, indeed pushes to one side knowledge and understanding. Is there anybody you could identify now who you think would be in a place to push a counter-reformation in terms of identifying what should be in a modern canon, for example, in humanities degrees? Do you think these people, that there are people, for example, I know Neil Ferguson is, is a relatively well-regarded historian. Do you think you could identify a few people? Who no, might I, but I have no interest in that. Anyway, I'm, my, my view of civilization is irrevocably collapsing around us, and I, I don't expect there to be any rescue. I'm not sitting on a desert island waiting for the puff of smoke from the, from the rescuing uh, steamship. Uh, it, it's over. So I don't look for that kind of thing. And there will, be, there will be people who resist it, people who continue to, to observe old standards for a while, but in the end they'll be driven out. And for those people, perhaps, um, unrealistically, slightly optimistic, trying to survive, who would you point to? What kind of figures would you point to? And what locations might there be? Well, I wouldn't. They can look for them. If, 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 if they're crazy enough to be optimistic right. under these circumstances, they can look for them right. themselves. Yeah. But if you're clinging to the wreckage, it seems to me to be idle to start to, to, to start trying to design a country house. Mm. Yeah. Do, you think, do you see any hope in figures like Jordan Peterson or the kind of accolade? Absolutely they... not, no. I, I mean, I think, I think Jordan Peterson's uh, cult is an absurdity. Mm. Uh, have you read his book? The first oh, yeah. one. Well, the second one. Oh, no, I haven't. I, the first was enough for me. So, so I think there's a nuance here, right? Because I, I read your review, I think, in The Spectator of uh, Peterson's yeah. book. However, what he's doing with his podcast, I think, truly is a, an emancipatory... I mean, the, the technology itself is emancipatory, but... Well, so you're very welcome to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's both a symptom of the demise of the universities and well maybe it is but it's, it's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with thought it's, it's a cult it's, 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 it's somebody off, offering some sort of uh, some sort of apparent hope in a world where there isn't very much right do you, do you not believe in any type of figurehead do you think people should actually no I, I, I'm against I'm against temporal hope it's, it's what one of the 19th century popes called satanic optimism. It's foolish. 
you, you just delude yourself. As, as embodied in a specific individual you're well, in? Well, particularly, yes. I mean, there, there, there is no temporal hope. Because it's an enterprise, not a cult culture. Um, we want to ask you about the best arguments in favour of, um, well, against actually to begin, academic selection and reviving grammar schools that you've encountered. Well, there isn't one. The fascinating thing is that the, 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 the opponents of academic selection in British schools never actually said these schools are bad. They never said they provided bad education. They said that this, the price of this, in terms of mainly a political egalitarianism, was too high for them, and they preferred a more politically equal society uh, in which the privilege of education was was destroyed rather than distributed more widely than, than, than it should continue. You, they, they, they only ever attacked it obliquely. They would attack, for instance, the 11 plus examination with, with reason. It wasn't necessarily the best way of, of achieving selection. But the, 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 you'll find even in some of the fiercest attacks on ground schools, they will say, well, yes, these are, these are good schools. Mm-hmm. So there isn't one. They never had one, and there was no. It's noticeable. There is no book to which you can turn anywhere, and no research program anywhere which you can. Which says that if you have comprehensive education, education will be better. Nobody has ever really made that statement. In fact, the founder of the whole, the inventor of the term comprehensive school, Graham Savage, admitted in his initial writings about it that there would be uh, a loss. But they wanted, he, as he put it, he wanted a more democratic society. He was very much afraid that there was, uh, that if the society was not more equalised, there would be a revolution. That was his driving fear. And as you say, it was a, a system very much borrowed from the American ideal, right? It well, he's, Savage's initial paper was written after a visit to the United States and Canada. So if, if you took all of the arguments that let's face it, our enemies make against grammar schools and selection more generally. I, I, I disagree because I don't think they're all equal. I think some are better than others. So, for example, we've got the stigma, what you've spoken about and you just said, you alluded to the fact that 11 may be too young, maybe 13, so maybe we could... But I accept these arguments. I think 11 may be too young in some yeah. cases. Um, it would be foolish to be rigid about age. I think that, that the 11 plus, which was a noble attempt to overcome class prejudice in origin, in fact, uh, and it was never the only uh, basis on which children were selected for, for, for grammar schools. But I think there are things to be said against it. The Germans managed to select without it. So it's not the point. But the, the, an actual frontal attack on the idea of having schools with academic selection uh, was never made. What do you deem the best method for selection to be? Well, I'm prepared to listen to, to, to argument. If anybody gives me the opportunity to re-establish a selective system, I'll listen to anything anybody says. I mean, I, 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 I'm certainly, I think 11 may be too early, but you have to be careful not to leave it too late. If you leave it too late, yeah. then the bright child from the poor home will already have sunk. Mm-hmm. So if you wait, for, for instance, for sixth-form colleges, which in many cases are very good schools, uh, it's very rare for anybody to, to reach the age of 16 from a, from a poor home in a, in, a, in a dud comprehensive school who's going to get into a sixth-form college, whereas at 11, the chances of spotting somebody before they sink are much higher. So you can't, you can't go too high. Yeah. So you have to find a compromise in there, and you also have to have uh, rescues of people who've been failed and back roots later on. I, it, it, in fact, a lot of these things did exist, and the, the portrayal of the system as it existed before is, 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 not, is, is often unfair. A lot of effort was made by teachers to try and make sure people didn't miss out on what they, what they ought to get. So was there actually a route in the 60s and the 70s beyond the 11 plus? Oh yes, there were 13 plus tests, and, and, and if people were found in secondary modern schools to be of a high standard, then they would be transferred. Not many. Right. And there was also later on, as the there was one of the main things which which destroyed the the system was the huge baby bulge which ran through the schools uh, after 1945 and hit the the grammar schools in 1956. When the, of course the, the, there were many many more pupils who. Who, who were qualified to go, but the schools had not been expanded, there was no room for them. So an awful lot of people qualified for grammar schools were sent to secondary moderns. And many of them ended up taking GCE O-levels and then switching to grammar schools to do A-levels. It's very hard to find figures for this, but it was not as rigid 
as people believed that it was. And nor were the secondary moderns as disastrous as people, as universally disastrous as people said. They, they varied, as comprehensive vary very considerably. Uh, some of them were a pretty high standard by the end. But it's, it's not, it, it, isn't, it was never that simple. I want to uh, dwell for a second before we get on to the main arguments for selection and grammar schools on one of the critiques which I find, and again you acknowledge, is it's hard to answer in any precise detail, but at the same time it's probably not something that um, we need to worry about at the expense of saying, no, grammar schools are a bad thing, and that's stigma. So I remember being, I don't know if I was seven or eight years old, and for whatever reason I wasn't paying attention to how to learn the time, and I was put into uh, a side group in the class given these sheets with analog clocks on. And I remember within 20 minutes, I thought, oh, well, this is easy. I shouldn't, shouldn't be here. But everybody else in that small group was clearly, they had some type of intellectual disability or behavioral issue. So I, I and I felt that stigma, thought, oh, well, I shouldn't be here. So the last, you know, I'm in favor of selection. I'm in favor of actually much more rigid selection than we had in the mid sixties and even gifted schools. But I don't want anybody to feel so stigmatized that it, they're still thinking about it when they're 55, their brothers got into grammar school and they didn't. So do you think there's any way to ameliorate that? I mean, you've spoken about a few of those ways, but for example, could we have pragmatically um, a point of entry every single year? Uh, is there any way in addition to that to, if you're going to have selection, why, have well, why would you? Why would you have it? Why, why would you be rigid? Why would if somebody had, had had failed to get into a grammar school at eleven or thirteen? Why, if at fifteen or sixteen they turned out to be qualified for it, would anybody bother to resist uh, letting them switch? What would be the point? So, so, so I agree with that. But do you think there's any way if we're going to have selection, say the thirteen hundred grammar schools of the mid sixties, is there any way to not have people feel? so stigmatised that they still think about it at 55? Well, I don't know. I don't know how many people were, did feel stigmatised. Yeah, there's very little work on it. And you, the, the most prominent example I can think of is, is, is John Prescott, who was so stigmatised that he became Deputy Prime Minister. So I, I don't know. I, what, what is one supposed to do? Yeah. Uh, what seems to me to be much, much worse is to find somebody who's, who's clever and sharp and has exactly. all the talents and to tell that person throughout a terrible education yeah. that he or she is passing exams with high grades, and then at the end of it for them to find out that they're not well educated in an immensely competitive world, and that they can't cope because, uh, because they were never given the chance to learn. That seems to me to be a much more terrible stigma uh, to place on somebody, so to, to make them into a failure while kidding them that they're a success, and to, uh, and to waste their talents. You have to choose. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's not the life of the world is not some great big Montessori school. We can't make everybody happy. Yeah, yeah. And also, I don't yeah. think even Montessori schools manage to do that. Absolutely. And let's, let's also make sure that we note that the kid who is, you know, got an IQ of about 85 and struggles to write a letter, putting them in a class, any class of mixed ability, where they feel like a moron is not nice. Right. They need to go at their own pace. It's a fascinating thing that when Anthony Crossland was proposing that we went into a comprehensive education system, he flatly denied that it would mean mixability teaching. He said it wouldn't happen. It's in, it's in the future of socialism. He says it's not going to happen. There wouldn't be any such thing. He, he denied that it would cause all the problems that the American education system had, had undergone. He said it wouldn't happen. He didn't understand what he was doing. And what did he think would happen instead of mixed ability? Classes? I think he thought that some sort of streaming would, be, would become right. universal. But there was a very strong campaign in the, in the late 60s uh, among left-wing teachers against streaming. And in a lot of places, it was more or less abolished. It survives. Yeah, it began then. It was very militant. Um, it, 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 it was very successful. As streaming has sort of returned to setting in some subjects now. Uh, but the, the other thing about ground schools and comprehensives was that a lot of the comprehensives inherited quite a, a lot of grammar school teachers and traditions, continued in some cases to have teachers wearing mortarboards and gowns and honours honors boards on the walls and uh, religious services at the beginning. But at the same time as the change took place, the Cultural Revolution was going on and the whole, the, 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 the comprehensive schools weren't able to maintain these things in the way that grammars could have done and they gradually abandoned them. And of course there was among, again, the radical teachers who were very much in favour of the change, there was great hostility to such things anyway. 
So it wasn't just a simple matter of going from grammar school to comprehensive. Some of the early comprehensives would, would seem to a school child today to be fantastically disciplined, rigid, silent, screamed, and all the rest of it. It didn't last. This was a point that we were discussing earlier about the not being, well, the, the owners not being entirely on academic selection, but also on a culture. We're talking about. It, was a, it was a huge expansion of the teaching profession because the school leaving age was being there was a preparation underway to raise the school leaving age and the the, the baby bulbs caused an unending demand for new teachers and the expansion of teacher training also meant changes in teacher training so the kinds of people who actually became teachers were, were different sorts of people from before and perhaps in, less well educated in some cases too so that changed at the same time. So let's get on to it then. If you had to boil down uh, the top three arguments for grammar schools and academic selection, what do you think they would be? I mean, you famously said that this is something that we should do, even if only 10 to 15 percent of the people attending these schools were on free school meals, because social mobility isn't the key reason to do this. It's a good in and of itself. Isn't it? You weren't the middle class is not a is not a hereditary class. It's a it's a class which both recruits and discards. So it would be amazing if a, if, if a class which depends so much, particularly on the education professions, uh, didn't have put place a high value on education and, uh, and didn't have, uh, in many cases, children who did well in school. Uh, it's ridiculous to be against grammar schools because some of the people who go to them are middle class. Uh, but the fundamental reason, the most powerful reason for, for academic selection is to avoid the otherwise tragic waste of talent. That's the first. And the other reason is that for the sake of, of the national good, you need to have a class of people who know how to think. And if you don't have proper, rigorous secondary education, you won't have such a class of people, uh, which seems to me to be demonstrated daily in this country at the moment. Mm. Uh, our supposedly elite classes are almost unbelievably ignorant and incompetent and, and are unable to take intelligent decisions about practically anything. Listen to them. Listen to discourse in the, in, in the House of Commons now. It used to be the case. It isn't anymore because the House of Lords has been diluted beyond belief. But 30 years ago, you could walk along the corridor from the House of Commons, which was largely post-revolutionary, and go to the House of Lords. And the difference between the standard of debate was, was immense. The Lords would speak in form sentences, would argue logically and, 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 and reasonably, and from knowledge. And in the Commons, people would tend to shout slogans. Now it's all shouted slogans. And this is from front benches we're talking about as well, not just, uh, not, 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 not just the foot soldiers. So what kind of individual, not crew, not society, what kind of individual should benefit most ideally by grammar schools and academic selection? Well, it, it, I, I think it's, it, you, it, you know it when you see it. I think a teacher is going to see uh, the enthusiasm, the, the, the readiness to learn. I, it's different if, if it's somebody who's immensely talented or is going to be immensely talented in mathematics and the sciences, they're going to be different from somebody who's going to be uh, a, a, a possible philosopher or somebody who's going to be a, a, um, a future teacher or somebody who's going to be a, any of those things. The, the, I, who, who needs to be rigid about it? But I would have thought that any teacher in primary school, particularly towards the later years, would be aware of the fact that there are going to be girls and boys in their class who are obviously better suited to an academic education than others. And, and at the moment, they're all flung uh, pell-mell into the same sorts of schools as people who aren't uh, interested in that. And it, it just makes sense for them to be in, in smaller schools, which can be small because they, they don't need to be huge to have decent-sized sixth forms. Uh, and they can be put into such schools among people like themselves against whom they can compete reasonably and, uh, and who they won't hold back and who they won't be held back by. I want to uh, tell you an anecdote about um, a student that I taught. Um, he is in Mensa. I think he has an IQ of about 142, so that would place him well inside the top 1%. Uh, he is a phenomenally gifted philosopher. I met him when he was 13, so in year nine. Worked with him year nine, year 10, and recently um, getting him into uh, his A-levels. Um, he read Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, all of Plato. This was a gifted person. I mean, if you look at the IQ bell curve distribution, he would probably, probably be one in a 100,000. 
possibly higher. Um, but uh, he's incredibly intellectually curious, right? And he, he was firmly driven by philosophy, some, some interest in mathematics. I was a kind of life draft in that school where he would gravitate to philosophy. And obviously it's in a set curriculum and I've got a mixability class, so it's already hard enough to give him, you know, to differentiate and give him something to chew on. When I would speak to teachers, they would tell me that, oh, um, I'll use another name. John is, he, he might be very good in philosophy, but he really needs to learn how to write a, a PEA paragraph, right? Point evidence analysis. He just isn't very good in English. Or oh, his mathematics needs a bit of improvement. And I got this sense that they were annoyed that he was much smarter than they will ever be, much more well-read than any English teacher will ever be, and they wanted to put him down. And this was a kid who I, he'd been to a school in the Netherlands. If you're familiar with the expression, you know, cutting the poppies to size, this is what had happened to this Well, you may well be right. I, do, I have no experience of this. I, it wouldn't surprise me. It would be in the nature of an egalitarian system that it finds it hard to cope with people who don't who don't rub along with it. But I, it, it's not for me to talk about because I haven't seen it happen. But I, what, what I'm trying to say is that this, for me, this is what a grammar school is for these people. It's well, maybe a, so. I think I certainly would. It, but there are, there are plenty of people who aren't, who, who aren't as outstanding as that who would benefit from it. I mean, there are exceptional. There are always people so exceptional that even the dimmest person can spot it. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, the, the, I'm not really talking about it, the, the absolutely exceptional. I'm talking about possibly... The, the top 25 to 30 percent. Indeed, that's, that's a <laughs> sector of the student population that we worked out was uh, attending grammar schools. We think, it, yeah. well, it varied because in some areas there were far too few of them, and in others there were, yeah. there were enough. So, for instance, in Wales, you had a very good chance of getting into a grammar school, whereas in Surrey, uh, virtually none, and in some, in some poor areas as well, it was, they were very thin on the ground. Some of them, the provision was down to about 10 or 11 percent, I think. So this is what we wanted to, uh, to ask you about, because we, I mean, Ness has uh, studied psychology. I'm, I'm very interested in educational psychology. 26%, if that is the number we're going to take in the mid-60s going to grammar school, that does seem to us to be quite high if you look at, like, the IQ distribution, because that would mean that someone with an IQ of about 110 is yes, getting into grammar school, and that's not... Well, these aren't, these aren't gifted and talented special academies. They're just schools for the normally, the, the, the normally educationally competent, um, the kind of people who are interested in academic education. Part of the problem with, with this country and many other countries is we've never been able to work out what to do with people who are not academically uh, able, but who are otherwise able. Germany, for instance, has extremely good technical schools, which we, we've never had. Uh, in fact, there was visits to Germany by British educators during the, the 1950s, and they came back saying, who exactly won the war? Uh, the schools seem to be doing much. We hardly ever had a, a proper sector of technical schools. They, they theoretically existed, and in some parts there were few in Manchester. There was one in Oxford, but they, they were very rare, and they, did, they, they, they never achieved much of a standing. So we, we never did that. So what we do is we provide third-rate academic education to everybody. Well, that's, that's the key, key to the argument that put forth by Ed Hart. Head, hand, heart, yeah. Yeah, by, by David Goodhart, and he does to look at um, German education as a way to refurbish. I'll bow to your superior knowledge of David Goodhart. <laughs> oh, well. So, uh, on, on gifted education, um, I'm, I'm very interested in this, and you know, this student uh, I see as someone who's been left behind. Um, I was very shocked to see, or not that surprised, that... The UK government set up in 2002 a programme called Young, Gifted and Talented. That was scrapped in 2010. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't strap it in 2003. <laughs> um, in order to allocate funds, if the Wikipedia article is correct, to disadvantaged students. Um, this is ridiculous. That's all they always ever do. Uh, you know, they, they, they will have these projects, and it's, but it's all finding individuals and trying to uh, uh, surround them with assistance or give them extra this or that or direct extra funds to someone. But they, they, there is an absolute prohibition in law uh, on, on setting up schools which, are, uh, which select on the basis of ability. They are, you can't do it. The ones which exist are, are, are reprieved. You can do it at 16. Uh, and the, 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 these famous uh, academies in London, which do so well, they all select brutally at 16. Mm -hmm. 
and you can do it in sixth form colleges. So uh, Hills Road Sixth Form College in right, yeah. Cambridge is one of the best schools in the country. The academics and their kids. Yeah, of course, but it's, 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 it, you can do it there. But if you, if you want to set up a new school which selects at 11, then, uh, then it's against the law. You cannot do it. Against the law. Amazing. Whenever I say it to myself, I think, what are they going to do, call the police? It is is that mad. They actually made it illegal. It's mad and very sad for these. Yeah, it's awful. But no, all kinds of efforts are made. I mean, there are gifted and talented programs in American schools, and there are a couple of American high schools, uh, I think Stuyvesant in New York and Thomas Jefferson in Northern Virginia, uh, which have attempted to introduce some sort of academic selection though they have inevitably run into, into, into the sort of problems you might expect by doing so. But they do try from time to time. It's not illegal there, but it just doesn't fit with the general, the general high school system, which is neighborhood. Therefore, when I lived in Bethesda in Maryland, uh, real estate advertisements for houses would, would say Pyle and Whitman, meaning referring to the, the, the junior high and the high school in the area, which were the, which were the best schools for many, many miles around, which were uh, almost entirely attended by the children of the extremely well-off. Mm. Uh, and that's how they do it. Yeah, this is also the case. It, you have to be plutocratic to afford private education in the USA. Mm. There's a lot of that in Washington, D.C. as well. Mm. There's a lot of people from the North Walls who travel to a county in Florida called Sarasota that has brilliant, uh, well... Relatively brilliant. Relatively, yeah. <laughs> Relatively brilliant. Still Florida, still in the United yeah, States. Um, selective schools or schools that are vast and have a streaming program or an IB International Baccalaureate program yeah. that uh, selects students so on sucks. academic merit, but not on IQ. Whereas there's another, uh, another school in that county called Pineview, which does select on the basis of IQ tests, but the threshold is below the gifted, uh, but above that of grammar schools. So 100, around 120, I believe. Yeah. I mean, there are other places do it. I mean, the, the main examples. I mean, the, the, yeah. the Netherlands does a fair amount of academic selection. It's quite complicated by our standards. Um, and the, um, Germany has it. I think Austria has it as well. And Switzerland has some form of it. I've never been able to discover because it's canton-based. Mm. Uh, but lots of people have it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's not... Um, it's, 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 it's not unknown. It's just we, here it is technically... Yeah. illegal to start to, to, to revive it where it's been destroyed. Yeah, and many countries that do not have it then only have grammar school level schools and those who cannot make it have to repeat years. Oh, the repeating, of the, the repeating of the year yeah. is, is, the, is, is, is something which you just don't hear of it here, but yeah, it's say Russian schools, schools it's, exactly. it's, it's, it just, you just, yeah. if, if you don't make it, you just, you, just don't, yeah. you just don't move up, which is far more ruthless, it seems to me, in the selection. Well, a lot of people don't think so. Better to survive in that system well, and maybe, no, not have differentiation, which is a strange argument, but might make some cultural sense, I suppose. We're still equal if we're part of the same pond, but some of yeah, us make it out so. of the pond and become frogs and others <laughs> just continue being little tadpoles. I don't know. Yeah. That's a fit analogy. But that's my experience of it, having studied in Spain, where the, the schools are generally more difficult than they are in average, on average in this country. As but they hold you back a year if you don't make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so common to repeat a year because it's difficult yeah. enough that there's very little sigma attached to having repeated mm, a year. If you have repeated two, then maybe there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> How many times can you do it? <laughs> I don't know. I guess it depends on the school and the yeah. other demographic factors, <laughs> cultural. Well, I expect they have nicer neighborhoods in Spain as well. I, d- I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a lot of greenery. So uh, back, to, back to Gift and Talented then. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there should be some type of uh, gifted and talented school system where the grammar schools would actually identify I have these no opinions on that at all. I try to stick to what I have actually studied. I really don't know. As I said, I'm not an educationist. I just, I don't, I'm, I try to keep it narrow. My, my concern is, is fundamentally a political one. Yeah. See, I, I I'm, as, I'm as political as the people who destroyed the grammar schools. Yeah. I think that it's. I have strong political reasons for wanting them back, yeah. but I, I'm not. I, there are good. There are good educational reasons for for having them too. Whereas the in, in the, the comprehensive fanatics 
their only arguments were political. They had no educational arguments. Mm. And so I, I just see the gifted uh, and talented sc- uh, school system were there to be one as a natural extension of grammar school. Well, yeah. you may be right. I simply don't know. Yeah. And I, have, I know nothing about it. And I, I, I've learnt over an extremely long life to try quite hard not to talk about things I know absolutely nothing about. I appreciate about. If I know a little about it, I can talk about it. Nothing is mm. generally a ban. One thing we didn't mention was uh, your incredibly important argument about selection by house price. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, it's, not, it's just obvious. Yeah. Well, it's obvious it was, to they us. They knew it was, it was raised at the, at the time that the, the plan for getting comprehensive was, was, was being, the opponents of it said, you will get neighbourhood schools. And in Britain, neighbourhoods will mean some schools will be largely surrounded by poor housing and others by one-off. It's just, it, it barely needs saying. It's the same. Sometimes it will rain. It's a banality. And it's how new Labour people get around the, the, the state school system. You look at the catchment area of Camden School for Girls, which, by the way, takes boys in the sixth form, and it's tiny. And there are uh, very um, well-off left-wing people who have bought extremely expensive houses in its catchment area simply to get their children into it. Um, or, as you say, they pretend to be a certain faith for a while. That's another thing you can do, yes. But in the case, a lot of left-wing people can't really do that. Not convincingly. <laughs> Not even at yeah, all. They, do need they wouldn't want. They wouldn't want. <laughs> yeah, this one's they for absolutely real. <laughs> wouldn't want to. But there are the, the, so the, there are there are two methods. And that is the other one. Could you uh, tell people, uh, we've got a lot of um, uh, American and uh, yeah, well, North American listeners, could you tell people about your famous quote about the London Oratory School? Well, I had an argument with the Blair family about the London Oratory School, which is an extremely, uh, by the standards of the British state education system, an extremely rigorous secondary school in West London, many miles from where Mr. Blair and his wife and the large family lived, not large, medium-sized family, lived in, in Islington in North London when he was leader of the opposition. And yet it turned out that he was sending one of his children to this school, an oratory. And because, uh, allegedly, of religious reasons, that I believe there was a Roman Catholic school a lot nearer uh, his home than the oratory. And I wrote an article in which I said that Mr. Blair and his wife were avoiding the comprehensive system which they wanted to impose on everybody else. And Mrs. Blair re- responded angrily and said that it was absolutely not true uh, that the London Oratory was a comprehensive school, uh, which technically it was. Uh, let's not go into the hours and hours and hours of, 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 of reasons why it wasn't that comprehensive. But in the end, I agreed a statement in which I said that, yes, indeed, the London Oratory is a comprehensive school in the same way that Number 10 Downing Street is an inner-city terraced house. Factually true. Absolutely factually true. All the facts are true, but the impression is entirely misleading. Maybe they had a really musical child. Well, anyway, uh, that's no, it's, it, this, 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 this thing, the, the, the religious thing is, is, is actually is quite embarrassing for persons who are genuinely religious to look at the way that it's used by people. On the other hand, I suspect that quite a large number of English middle-class people are introduced to the Christian religion, uh, and their children are as well, as a result of the constant struggles to get yeah. their children into the better state schools. Right. So it actually, yeah. it probably has quite a good effect. Some of them may yeah. even believe it by the end of it. I have wondered whether there would be as many Catholics as there are in West London, were it not for the London Oracle. There is, it's a reasonable suspicion. But yeah. there you are, we must give thanks for those things for which we must give thanks. Yeah. Um, we had a question if, uh, about um, alternatives to the grammar school uh, uh, system, which nonetheless may be selective. So is there any system that you can um, convey or concoct that um, would be better than the past uh, grammar school system that you would like to see? No, I can't. No, I'd be willing to listen to arguments. But again, I, I write on the basis of history and experience mm-hmm. and also existing practice in those countries which do select. Right. Uh, it seems to me to be uh, about as good as you can get for that sort of thing. But you would rather favour the the German system, which includes grammar school. Well, it seems to me to work, yeah. and it, and also it's 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 popular. And when the this is the most fascinating story of all is when the German Democratic Republic collapsed, and they had had a modified comprehensive system, uh, which is I think all through um, schools from I think about seven to eighteen. 
uh, ordinary Oberschüler. Uh, but about 14 or 15 percent went to extended upper schools, invited to Oberschüler, which you entered later. These tended to be, uh, obviously they weren't, they weren't necessarily untalented people, but it tended to help a lot if, you, if you'd already signed up and said you were going to join the army and do officer training, or your parents were members of the Communist Party, or you had a good record in the Freie Deutsche Jugend or, or some other communist front organization. Uh, if, you, if you had a bad political record, the chances of you getting into them were very small. Uh, they, but they, they only took 14%. And without, if you couldn't get into a, one of these, you pretty certainly wouldn't get into university either. So right. there was a lot of resentment of them. Mm-hmm. So when the, the East German regime fell, all the new lender in Germany received petitions from large numbers of parents saying, please, can we have our gymnasium back, mm-hmm. uh, which we had before? And they were reintroduced. Uh, and of course, they took much more than fourteen percent. So you, they greatly widened the number of people getting into university. So it was, uh, it, it was, it had that advantage for people, but they they still had a more or less a tripartite system, uh, as largely exists in in the former West, and it was by popular demand, and it it was reintroduced. So you can put the clock back. So this is what fascinates me about it. You go to almost any East German town, you'll find one or two or more new gymnasium buildings. I visited one. Can you talk about that? Well, much. I mean, I, did, I don't speak uh, anything remotely resembling fluent German. I, went, I spent a day with the, with the English class. Mm-hmm. And the, it was in a town called Wismar, a seaport town on the Baltic. Mm-hmm. And you genuinely had the children of dockers and doctors in the same class. It seemed to me to be admirable, and the standard of education high enough for me to converse very readily with these with these uh, sixteen, seventeen-year-olds whose English was superb. How would you? How did you compare them, or how did they appear different to you to the grammar schools of your memory? Well, the Germans never had, I don't think, either, the old English grammar schools were quite a formal establishment, a lot of uniform, uh, often quite strong, uh, strong religious influence. Right. Uh, whereas the, the Germans, I don't think, have gone in for this very much in education, so it's different in that way. Mm-hmm. It's quite surprising you think of Germany as being a regimented country, but in fact, not so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd, you know, I, I don't have that much experience in English grammar schools, so I couldn't really make especially as, as, as they are now, mm-hmm. which is a bizarre, uh, anomalous position anyway, so I couldn't really tell you. So. There is this burgeoning field of uh, research in behavioural genetics. If it turns out that schools do nothing, or they maybe add a few percentage points to people's life chances um, and their their educational attainment, and it's all just one big self-fulfilling prophecy based on your IQ, your personality, uh, your parents' social economic status, which is a reflection in turn of their IQ and their personality. If it turns out that schools do very little, we assume that you would still be in favour of grammar schools. Could I'd you tell be us against why? comprehensive schools because whatever, however, however little grammar schools might, uh, may add, I think comprehensive schools can subtract an enormous amount from the lives of, 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 of several, uh, quite large numbers, I think, of individuals whose life chances are ruined by them. No. I see. That makes sense. No. Um, you've uh, often alluded to, and in fact, uh, spoken about in your book um, about the brain drain from America. Uh, from well, I mentioned it. Yeah, I have. I have a vague memory of it. I've. I've, I've been unable in vague looking up to find much, much about it, except that it gets mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and I remember people talking about it a lot, but I don't claim any expertise in it. Is it people, who, yeah. people who took part in it, indeed. But it's. It's. It. it the general view was, particularly in the sciences. That we were producing uh, scientists at a much higher level than the American state school system was, and the Americans noticing this offered them large sums of money to go and live there. Well, who wouldn't? Okay. After they could speak English, it was easy. Mm-hmm. They could get them the visas, and 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 who who lost by this arrangement? Well, we lost by because we we trained and educated all these people who then went somewhere else. It was the sixties, seventies? This was talked about a lot. I remember in in the early sixties. Uh, and from this anecdotal vantage point, perhaps not as um, studied, 
Um, how did this take place? Would it be? I have no idea. I would, if you want details, you'll have to ask somebody else. I hope somebody will write a history of it, but it isn't me. But it would, it would be mostly universities, companies, a mixture? Well, I would imagine that, that they would... What, the, 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 the thing I heard all the time uh, was that a set of English A-levels in the early 1960s was considered at least the equivalent of an American college degree. And that our education system was producing people who were, who were considered very valuable by the Americans. And they went there. And it was, you heard of people who had gone there. They'd been offered by comparison with Britain large sums of money to go. In those days, America was quite a difficult place for British people to go to. You couldn't, most people couldn't travel much because of the currency restrictions on travel. It was a place where, where you, you didn't just go. So it was a remarkable thing if someone went to America. And it was happening. But as I say, I, I would love to see a history of it because I heard about it so much. But and it's plainly, it's not going on now. Uh, but it was, it was a constant feature of that period of my life. I remember it being talked about. And then I, I realized a few years ago that I hadn't heard it mentioned for a very, very long time. Do you relate this uh, to the decline of Britain as you... Oh, completely. Well, I, mean, I relate it directly to the fact that we trashed our, our, our school system because half the problem with grammar schools is that as, 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 if you destroyed them, then you destroy the gold standard of the whole education system. And you then, the examination system then has to be diluted and inflated to cope with a low level mm. uh, of education. Of course, that means that, that, that bad state schools can survive and appear to be doing well because they're, they're, their children are getting high-grade GCSEs and A-levels, even though they're, they're not actually producing particularly good work. Universities have to cope with this by devaluing their degrees. And the other thing which happens is that the, the private sector, which only ever educates about 7%, is handed on a plate a huge gift it, simply by existing and by breathing in. A decently run private school can get almost all its pupils high grades and low grade examinations. So the private schools look terrific. Mm -hmm. They don't have to make any effort. So the old competition that they were having against really tough grammar schools back at the end of the, 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 end of the 50s and the early 60s is over. Uh, on a, it's a breeze for them, and they can produce these perspectives showing everybody that ever goes to school comes out garlanded with A, a stars and, and, and grade nines, and parents will flock to them and, and pay their gigantic fees. So, but while all this is going on, the actual standard of education being provided by all the schools, state and private, is immensely lower than it was before. Mm -hmm. Only, only state grammar schools are based entirely on on on, on ability and on rigor. Could counteract that that inflation, and, and bad money drives out good, and it has done. So, in what ways would these emigres emigres to the United States? staying in the UK have affected this um, decline, do you see? Not at all, as far as I know. I can't think of any way in which they would have done I mean, the country suffers in terms, of, in terms of education. I, I don't know, but in terms of a country suffers when it has, it has fewer talented people in it. That's why the East Germans built the wall. Do you, do you imagine there would have been more resistance against the closing down of grammar schools? I don't think so, no. I mean, there was a lot of resistance, but it was just, it was just overridden. Right. There was, no, there was no shortage of intelligent people arguing that we should keep the grammar schools in the civil service, in politics, and elsewhere. But it was not, there was no, um, it, it, it was, wasn't a majority. And it wasn't going to swing any votes. So it didn't make any difference. So I shouldn't have affected the slightest. Um, before we get on to uh, the role of the family and uh, marriage, which is obviously a key uh, socializing force in young people's lives and uh, their educational attainment and their life outcomes generally. Have you been to Michaela School? Yes. Yeah. What did you think of that? I, I have a sort of pact um, with Catherine uh, Burble saying, <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't talk about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Can I ask you a, a cheekier question, perhaps abstracting out from Michaela's lessons? Do you think that um, the type of uh, militaristic discipline, right, where you can't speak in the in the corridors because then you know, you can't have bullying, and the kids seem to feel safer? Mm -hmm. If we cannot have grammar schools, is this a route that you would at least favour in order? Well, to it's a Burkean point, isn't it? If, you know, if, if, if you if people can't don't know how to restrain themselves from within, then they get restrained from without. 
It's just that's the choice everybody has to make. And the, 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 the kind of world we've chosen is one in which people don't restrain themselves very much, do they? So what do you expect? Would you like to move on to yes, the family? indeed. <laughs> um, we see that you've, when you've mentioned either education, when, when you've been discussing debating education or the family, you identify both as pillars, the pillars of society, of any society, and you see both the demise of the family and of education as central to the decline of the country. Well, the married family is what I talk about, and there are other mm -hmm. kinds of family apart from the married family, but the married mm -hmm. family is the one which yeah. concerns me. So uh, what, what um, benefits should marriage regain in order to, for it to serve the function and, and have the value that you see in it? Well, here's, it it, this is, this, it, it, in law, the fundamental idea of what is a tort in civil law is if somebody's done wrong, if somebody's broken a contract which they've signed, then the courts are supposed to support the, the person who's observed the contract and... Uh, and punish in some way uh, the person who's broken the contract. So if you uh, smash your car and you go to the garage and they fix it and then you drive the car away and refuse to pay, they'll take you to court and you will be made to pay because that's the job of the courts. It's, uh, but if you, uh, if you swear a solemn agreement to remain married for life to somebody and you break that agreement, then the courts will take your side against the parties of the agreement who wants to keep it. That's the fundamental thing you have to understand in the nature of marriage law in almost all major Western countries since the middle 60s. The law actually takes the side of the person who wants to break the agreement. It's unique. I can't think of any other aspect of life in which the law actually takes the side of the contract breaker. And this revolution uh, is, is, is fundamental to the way in which life is lived now. Anybody who wants to remain married does not have the support of the law or the state or culture. It's considered uh, obstructive and a nuisance uh, to society and to everybody else. And if you can't reverse that, then you can't have a, a system based upon lifelong marriage. And it's extraordinarily recent, this. And I, I always cite the fact when I was a, uh, when I was a, a reporter for, for first for, for a, a, an evening newspaper down in Swindon in the early 1970s, there were two things that the junior reporters had to do all the time. One of them was people who were getting married would send in a form uh, describing uh, where it was going to take place. And from these forms, you would, you would do a brief two-paragraph story which would appear in the paper about their marriage. And one of the things which it said was the, the bride wore. And it was a standing joke in the office when it said the bride wore an empire line dress. It meant she was pregnant. Uh, in those days, an awful lot of people got married because they were pregnant, because that was the thing to do. It's what they did, and there were a lot of empire line dresses. And the other thing that junior reporters had to do was to go round when people's golden weddings came up. And there were a lot of people who had golden weddings. It's 50 years mm -hmm. married, and we used to go around. And, they, and we would always ask them what the secret of happy marriage was, and they would always say the same thing. They would always say, give and take. Every time, it was the same interview over and over again. But the thing was, there were a lot of them. In 1973, there were a lot of people who'd been married for 50 years and didn't think it was unusual. You won't find either of those things going on now. You won't find people getting married because they're pregnant, and you won't find people staying married for 50 years uh, because that's gone. But it was just at the end of it. I caught just the end of it because in 1968-69, the, the Labour government, bizarrely, in one of the few of its, of its cultural revolutionary things, which was actually... Uh, done with, with government backing rather than a private member's bill. It revolutionised marriage law. What other kind of provisions, both legal and perhaps social or political, um, marriage should be given to incentivise people into getting I don't want to say, I, mean, it's, 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 I, I, I would like the, the tax system to incentivise mm. it. I would, mm. I, for instance, I, I would like a system whereby it would be, if, if, if uh, all kinds of things could, could be incentivised, which used to be incentivised, considered good, that, that you, which would make it easier for people to live on one income than on two when they were mm. raising children, for instance. I would, you know, I would like the, the tax and benefit system uh, to, to be generous to people who had children. Something which ours, frankly, isn't very, compare it, you say, with France, yeah. uh, just for example. I, I don't know about other countries, but it's not particularly generous. But it was the, the, the also there used to be a, uh, this is gone now, but there used to be a thing called mortgage interest relief. And there was a long period 
when if two people were unmarried, they could get two lots of mortgage interest tax relief, which is worth quite a lot of money, uh, on a house that they were buying. Whereas if they got married, they only got one. There were things like that going on as well, but the 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 tax system, more or less, now, unless you're about ninety, there's an old, there's a a very old marriage allowance which survives uh, for those few people. But apart from that, I don't think the tax system really recognises marriage at all as a as a as a thing to be encouraged. Mm -hmm. But I I wouldn't mind if it were neutral. Uh, it, 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 it would be nice if it were not, from my point of view. But I'm not. I'm not arguing that the, the tax system should, should necessarily push people towards being married. Uh, I just think it, the, the legal system should not push people away from being married and to make marriage pointless. I, I quote Brenda Hale, who's now the, the, the Supreme Court woman, wasn't at the time. Uh, saying uh, that she couldn't work out what what remaining legal benefits there were in being married, and this was 30 years ago. Uh, and there are very, very few. They've almost all, the, the privileges of marriages were almost all been given to, to, to somebody else, uh, to, to, to other forms of relationship. And now we actually have heterosexual civil partnership. Uh, Which Jermaine Greer said in the Oxford Union debate you did with her wasn't a thing. I think that you did that in 2016, 2017. Yeah, so. yeah well, it's not, not Jermaine Greer's main concern. But I, it, 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 I'd, always thought, I'd always thought those who said once you have homosexual civil partnership, you'll have to have heterosexual mm-hmm. civil partnership. I thought it was bound to come. It couldn't not. Mm-hmm. And what you then basically have is the French have this thing called the PAC. I think, which is more or less the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it is it's it's not a it, it's not a marriage, and it's um, it, 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 it's it's extremely easy to dissolve, uh, even easier than marriage, which is fantastically easy to dissolve. And that, but it's the easy dissolution. It's the it's the encouragement of the idea that the, the moment a marriage goes awry, that the only thing to do is to dissolve it. And also the fascinating thing, as far as I know, I've yet dealt. I've put this forward, and no one has ever challenged me on it. I don't believe there's any point at which the English marriage law makes it harder to, to get a divorce if you have young children than if you haven't. There's no consideration given to that aspect of it at all, and you would have thought that would be fundamental. If you were and the, everybody says, well, divorce, it makes, it makes people so much happier. In the 60s, do you know what the most popular song in the charts ever was? It was in the charts for longer than any other. It was at number one for months and months and months and months. It wasn't the Beatles. It was a horrible song called Please Release Me, sung by a man called Engelbert Humperdinck. And the reason why it was, it was an anthem to divorce. It's you know, the, the, the repeated line, please release me, let me go. It was all about divorce. And of course, a lot of people felt great release from unhappy marriages. I don't deny it, but the fact is that the, 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 there were other people in a lot of these marriages who suffered, and they were the children, and they continue to do so. And it's, it's huge. And what, what marriage does is basically say, you, you, the adults, are more important than children. The, 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 the divorce law in its current state, it, it, it says adults are more important than children. And that's what we've decided as a society. And the consequences for the children, particularly the ones who are, in many cases, deprived of fathers, are huge. And once marriage ceases to be general, a lot of people don't get married in the first place. So you don't, you, people say, well, the divorce figures seem to have dropped this year. And you say, well, yes, they have, because there weren't enough married people to get divorced. Mm-hmm. That's why the, the, the divorce mm-hmm. figures have dropped. It's not because there are fewer people not living with, uh, with, with, with married partners. It's because fewer people got married in the first place. And again, those... Uh, those families, such as they are, are more easily dissolved. And again, it, it leads over and over again to fatherless children, uh, which I, I think every piece of research shows. You may, of course, there must be individual cases where children grow up without their fathers and everybody works out fine. But in, t- in general terms, uh, it's, it's considerably worse than where there is a father. Yeah, I was, I was just listening to uh, Jordan Peterson talk to Warren Farrell, who I don't know if you know, one of the uh, fathers of the, of the men's movement uh, actually was originally, I think, a uh, second wave feminist. And uh, he's just written a book, well, written in 2018, called The Boy Crisis, which I'm uh, reading now. And it is shocking. I mean, one in three, I think, now in North America and the UK, one in three children grow up without a father. The, the absence of a father affects boys much. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, think, I think there is a respectable research on this matter, which shows it. 
I can't cite it, but I, I, who really doubts it anyway? Yeah. But I think it was preventable. I, mean, I think that the, so the, the, the law chose uh, to indulge the adults over the children. And also the law didn't ever really care all that much about marriage. And when the church stopped caring about marriage, which it did, then there you are. Goodbye. But that was, that was a huge revolution. But I, I still find it completely fascinating that, that you have this, this complete reversal of the normal, the normal law of tort. In, in marriage law, that it's the it's it's, it's the breaker of the contract who's uh, who gets us the courts on his or, do, do you think his that, or her side. So pr- presumably, you would be in favour of it being harder to to leave a marriage. <sighs> well, I think I think I put it, 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 it shouldn't be so easy, um, but I also, I also think it should be harder to get married in the first place. Mm. Right. Okay. Okay. So. Do you think if it were harder to get married and harder to leave a marriage, more people would get married? Probably not, because again, it's not you can't. It's ridiculous to imagine that after, particularly after the invention of the contraceptive pill, that you could return to the to the um, marital arrangements which we had mm-hmm. before that. And you know, the contraceptive pill was not a was a was a was a, was a politically. Um, it is in your book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which. Um, it, it was it, it was it, it was a politically backed research. Mm-hmm. The people who backed it wanted to revolutionise society, and, and they did so. So on this on this point, you've decried therefore the role that the state has played in the dissolution of marriage and and married families. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, merely ceremonial marriages absent uh, a religious con- context? So I am aware that you've made a point about. Um, Religious marriage is still upholding uh, the notion of marriage that you believe it well. It is intrinsic to the concept. But how about uh, marriages that um, do not want to involve the state, but are not part of a religious tradition? I don't know. I, I don't. It's not. I, I haven't. I haven't thought about it. I don't know. I just. I, I think that once you once you've once you've destroyed a culture in which lifelong marriage is considered normal. Then you're again you're tossing about in an ocean of uncertainty. Nobody really knows where it will lead, and the people most likely to be washed overboard are the children. Okay, final uh, main question before two quick fire ones. You often describe yourself as a pessimist. Is there anything, any trend that you recognise as a source of narrow or specific optimism? I think bicycle brakes have got better. Firmer? <laughs> Less accidents <laughs> for cyclists. Yeah, I thought bicycle brakes have got better. No, I did not. Bicyclists themselves have got worse, so right. there were more accidents. But it is an undeniable fact that bicycle brakes are better than they were when I first started running. I assume you detest the uh, new optimists, as they're called, the Stephen Pinkers and the Hans Roslings, who say it's better than it's ever been and we're on a linear. Well, that's materialist, surely. I mean, it, there are a lot of things which are materially, materially better, but what price have you paid for that material progress? And, and for how many people are they materially better? You only have to go to Africa to find out how thinly spread that particular benefit is. And how, now, what, what are you, and you only need to go to, the, to, to, to Canton in China to see the level of life of people in a modern industrialized society. How long are we going to be spared that? We're living on the capital of centuries, but it will run out. And then, uh, what will this be like? You look out of the window here, and what will you see? You won't see many trees. It'll just be concrete. Concrete, plastic, traffic fumes. It'll all... I, my vision of the future is the whole world being like the suburbs of Istanbul. Just going on and on and on, forever and ever and ever, with you being... <laughs> and the car horns. Sounds like a... Uh... A more modern twist to Orwell's Animal Farm. No, it's a different. It's not about oppression. It's about desolation. Brave New World, then. Hmm? Brave New World, then. Well, no, Brave New World is actually Brave New World actually quite nice in many ways. Uh, the worst that could happen to you is you'd be sent to the Falkland Islands, mm-hmm. which are rather which are rather pleasant. And I can speak from experience. <laughs> I got a suntan in the Falkland Islands. <laughs> So clean. Well, not if they're sending a lot of people there. Well, they didn't. Not many people wanted to go. But the, if if that's if that was the oh, way that was the way your mind went, then that's where they would that's where they where they would send you. But in terms of you know, for most 
people, the, the, when I have arguments with people about legalization of drugs or marriage or any of these things, they uh, seem to want a society pretty much like Brave New World. Uh, in fact, Brave New World is much nicer than the society they will get. At least it works. Well, at least we're not so, that advanced, yeah. No, no, nothing like, no. One of the great, the key fallacy in Brave New World is that they, they get 100,000 biochemists to produce a pill which makes you happy and doesn't do you any harm. Mm. No one's ever done that. Because mm. pills that make you happy are bound to do you harm. And that's one of the really big problems. Soma is, is an impossible dream. That moves us nicely on to uh, our first quickfire question. What are your three favourite books? Three favourite. Can be fiction or non-fiction. No, I don't. I could. If I said three, then it would mean I'd forgotten, uh, forgotten something else. Um, Great Expectations. Mm. Um, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. And just springing to mind, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. We'll do for three. And uh, last quick fire question. Do you have any advice for young people other than emigrate? No, that's, that's <laughs> my advice, leave. What if you're already out of this country for, for the international audience? Well, then I have audience. no advice to offer. I mean, you've got, no. your, you've got your own problems. I can, I, <laughs> I can only offer you expert advice on the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern right. Ireland. But if Peter Hitchens were 24 today, what would you like him to know that he might not because of what today is? He like? wouldn't listen. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for watching. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. It was my first in-person interview, and with your support, there will be many more to come. The only reason that this is possible is due to your support. So if you'd like to support alternative media, get your name in the credits and early access to videos and even Zoom calls with myself, then you can become a patron for as little as £1 or $1. The link is in the description. You will also help pay for my my parking ticket in Oxford that I received whilst interviewing Peter, so thank you, Oxford, for that. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. Thank you for watching, and as always, I will see you next Sunday. Mm-hmm.